listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. Thank you for listening. The Infinite Smile Sangha is made possible by the generosity of friends, members, and people who have been touched by this teaching. Please visit our donations page at infinitesmile.org to help us continue our efforts in spreading the Dharma. I was discussing with one of our Sangha members how tonight we should expect it maybe to be a light night because of the uh, uh, NC2A game. And then I realized that being a competitive Buddhist is kind of like not what you're supposed to be, so that we might fill up. And we filled up, so nice. Um, <laughs> competition actually is something that can really fuel your practice. If you find that you are a competitive person, the, uh, I joke about, I, I have a group of friends who quite honestly call me the competitive Buddhist and they snicker when they say it. So I just snicker back. Um, and every once in a while I have shared the story with, uh, with you how, um, there are four kinds of horses in the Zen, Zen, uh, uh, Zen mythology. We, we tend to look at the four kinds of horses, which are signifiers of four kinds of practitioners. There's the one kind of horse that can see the shadow of the master's whip and will get going. There's another kind of horse that needs to hear the crack of the whip before it gets going. There's a third kind of horse that needs to feel it that needs to feel contact with that whip before it realizes, oh, I need to get going. And then there's the fourth kind of horse, which is the bloody horse. And I've always been a bloody horse. In my practice, at least, it was always really amazing kind of how um, it, took, uh, it, it, it took really getting hit with the Dharma. It took really getting hit with life to kind of fuel um, uh, believe it or not, that competitive spirit redirected into the pursuit of uh, the Dharma, the teaching. It was just amazing, uh, kind of how this how this all worked. But I would encourage I would encourage any of you who find yourselves in that space ever of being kind of you know I want I want I want I want that actually can be channeled into a really, really kind of constructive approach towards awakening to that truth that's beyond name and form. It's not, this is not, I should say, a practice that's just about giving in as much as it is about meeting life fully with presence. And presence is always surrendered. It's always an opening, as opposed to being closed and defended. Best example I can give of this from my life was one of the, just etched into my memory like nothing else. You know how awkward we can be in junior high? Um, well, I was about as awkward as you can get for a number of different reasons, but uh, 
that, that didn't get in the way of me having a crush on easily one of the prettiest girls in, um, in our class. And it was a seventh grade dance, the first seventh grade dance. Um, this would have been 1978. So fall, no, 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 I think it's 77, fall of 77. And so the way, the way this worked in junior high was we had this, this kind of uh, chunk of guys on one, end of, on one side of the gym and this chunk of girls on the other side of the gym. And then they had the DJ up in front playing and no one would dare cross that gap because the risks were just too high. If she said yes, when you went and asked her to, to dance, you were dancing in front of everybody. If she said no, you were doing the walk of death back to the group of guys. So anyway, uh, one of my friends said, so you're gonna go ask Jill to dance? I said, you're right. And then he pushed me and I was, Suddenly, I found myself in this spacious gap between the guy group who were all looking at me, laughing, and then I turned to face the girl group who were all looking at me, laughing. There was a very, very simple choice. Proceed, bloody horse though I was, or withdraw. And I knew because of the competitive spirit that I had grown up with, that retreat was not an option. In this situation, <laughs> just go forward. At least, at least you've gone to battle. You might die in the process, but there's honor in that death. So I proceeded to walk, you know, walk, walk over to the girls as, as, as cool as possible and, um, I know that's not an adverb, but forgive. Anyway, so I'm, I'm, uh, I, I get to uh, where, where Jill is, and I say, hi, how you doing? She goes, fine, how are you? She knows what's coming. I can tell she's nervous. I am freaking nervous, but she is, she is nervous as well because she knows the stakes are high. And I say, do you, uh, you want to dance? And she says to me, hmm, not right now. I'm kind of tired. <laughs> <laughs> At which point the Dharma opened up because I had no idea really what this was back then, but I had no place to go. I had no, I was meeting my life so fully, so totally. The music was kind of drowned out. Her reaction was what it was. I just knew that I was smiling. And I turned around and I started walking back towards the guys. All the girls started turning away from me laughing. <laughs> and all the guys started pointing at me laughing. And I walked right back into the group and I was like, oh, you know, that really, that, that, that just crushed, that just crushed me and so forth. But it took one guy, I don't know why I listened to him, one guy said, hey, that took balls, nice job. And I just kind of went, okay, well, at least I've got that. At least, at, at least, at least I've got that. At least I have one guy who reminded me that there is more to this than just 
giving up, giving in. <laughs> don't worry, I'll go talk to him. But uh, I don't know, maybe it'd be cool to have uh, skateboarding out, out back during our meditation. Um, Anyway, the, the long and the short of this is, uh, I'm sorry to drag you through this story here, but the, the point was that, or the point is, in, in this work, in spiritual uncovering as opposed to spiritual seeking, spiritual seeking means it's always out there. Spiritual uncovering means it's recognized to be within. And in that uncovering, that process of uncovering, it's always about meeting your life as that little seventh grader did. Now, I since have had all sorts of things where I totally, I have not mirrored that, but, but still, that, that moment was a really powerful moment, and I know each one of you have had, each one of you has had something similar where you can look back and you go, no, that, that took courage. Let that inform your practice now, because this is possible so often people look at awakening as the unattainable. Well, it's not something you attain. It's something that is. It's something that you uncover, but it's there, and you have every single thing you need to uncover it. So as much as this may sound like uh, I'm, I'm cheerleading, I'm also issuing a challenge. Whether you're the type of horse that just needs to see the whip, the shadow of the whip, or you're a bloody horse, doesn't matter, or somewhere in between. The fact is, freedom, liberation, a realization of this truth that goes beyond name and form is here, now. So, the... Uh, the way we do this is actually quite simple. I'm going to sound kind of gruff when I say it, but know that there's tons of humor in it as well. Sit still. Shut up. And let the questions come. That's all you got to do. Sit still. Shush. And let the questions come. And if you find yourself habitually orienting around a certain thought pattern or, or whatever. Bring total attention to that thought pattern. If you find yourself leaning into a particular direction bodily, explore that. How is the body feeling in this moment? How is the mind in this moment? And that perspective, that awareness of what's going on in body and mind actually is the red carpet into this freedom no matter what kind of horse you are. Shall we sit? So one of the most difficult things that we face as we begin uh, to uncover as we, as we begin this process of uncovering that in us which is already and always has been awake 
one of the most difficult things is commitment to it because the payoff isn't always seen. As a matter of fact, um, most people, as they enter into deep spiritual work, get uh, quite a bit of what we might call beginner's luck. They get teased into the experience of stillness, and suddenly it's like, ooh, man, we're going, all right. And uh, they may even have some, you know, very deep, deep experiences on their cushion or after, you know, they leave, uh, you know, the meditation hall or something. Usually there's a lot of beginner's luck. And it's a way of, um, interestingly, keeping us on the path. If there was no tease at all, it would be very, very difficult to do this work, which is to sit still, shut up, let the questions come. That's, you know, especially in the West, you know, where there's a cultural context surrounding dynamism, you know? Especially if you're part of the coffee generation, you know? I mean, we're about doing stuff. None of this sit still crap. No, we're going to do things. We're going to do awakening. Um, we're going to do meditation. Well, actually, meditation does you. And that's a very, very interesting and kind of counterintuitive thing for most people uh, who are beginning uh, on, this, uh, on this path. They, they find all these thrill, thrills as they begin, and then the plateau hits. So how is it that you engender some type of practice that can be committed? You know, something that comes from a, a deep, a deep, the deep wells within, so to speak. How can we do this? Um, how, can we, how can we continue to practice when we're looking for certainty, and yet the more we meditate, the more we recognize that uncertainty is the reality? What's there to practice with that? I mean, that's just basically saying, okay, the world is really scary. Deal with it. Really deal with it. Sit still right in the middle of that truth. And some people actually work through that. And uh, hats off to you if you if you face that, where it's like, you know what? Yeah, I'm going to die. So is everybody else. How am I going to live? I know that may sound like Braveheart, but it's true. It's like everyone dies. Not everybody really lives, so let's really live. How does that happen? Well, it comes in this beautiful commingling of uh, intention and surrender. That there's a committed intention to awaken. That we see that we actually have this, this, this want for it. We aspire for awakening. And with that, we begin to also appreciate what it could mean. We begin reading a great deal, typically. We begin, uh, you know, uncovering all, the, all the, uh, uh, the words that have been thrown at this thing we call, you know, truth beyond name and form. Whether you're doing it from a Buddhist, through a Buddhist lens, Christian lens, or you know any type of contemplative tradition, doesn't matter. We begin to recognize, you know, this this actually has some value to it. Not just that I want it, but actually there's something really deep here. There's something powerful going on 
I have a sense of it. I don't know what it is. I can't really put words to it. But there's something big happening. And then perhaps the most important aspect of this idea of, of commitment, as I mentioned earlier, is recognizing that, yeah, it's possible. That no matter what story your small self has written or your ego has authored about what enlightenment looks like or should look like, that's a very, very it's a brilliant example of a very partial truth. Whatever you think enlightenment should look like is a very, very small version of its revelation. This means that we kind of have to figure out how to get out of our way. How can we commit, in other words, to getting out of our own way? How can we commit? How can we really kind of take a personal vow, you know, I, I, want, to, I want to dig into this and I'm, I'm not turning around. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ask that girl to dance, damn it. Or boy to dance, whatever. Just pick it. And engage. We begin to have a deep appreciation of this very life that we are given the opportunity to explore, to examine, to dig into, to deconstruct, to open. We start listening very carefully to the longings of our bodies. We start watching these goals that the mind throws down. And we do not reject them. Big, big error, I think, in practice is that people say, oh, oh, no goal. I'm not allowed to have any goals. No, you're allowed to have all the goals you want. Go for it. Just don't cling to them and don't let them cling to you. Don't let them be Velcro goals where you just kind of stick to them. Let them be aspirations that you lean into, knowing full well that you might never get them or you might get something way beyond what you ever thought they could. Start recognizing your, your passions and your preferences. Let those guide you into places where you cling to stuff. So that this idea of stickiness, um, we can begin to give our full attention to what's kind of sticking to us or what we're finding ourselves sticking to and we can begin to kind of open. We do that by studying what it is that, that we really, really uh, need, desire, want, even if it's awakening. Study your preferences, study your passions, study your desires, study them. It doesn't mean don't have them, just like goals. Go ahead, have them. Just don't get caught by them. Let your passions be there. Dance with them openly, freely, without being bound by them. It's 
it's very, very easy to be passionate, for instance, about food. You know, really good food. You know, it's easy to be passionate about it. And know that it does not last. No matter how good, how transcendently phenomenal a particular meal was, that meal will go away and quite literally turn to shit. <laughs> okay? I'm not trying to get crude, but I'm trying to let you recognize this amazing universal process. You can't hang on to your meal. Let's hope you don't hang on to your meal. You can't hang on to a breath. You've got to let that flow happen. And if you can let your passions, you can let your desires, okay? If you can let your, your longings, if you can let your goals be in that flow space, suddenly then, everything kind of eases up a little bit. You're embodying this whole sit still, shut up mentality as you move through the world, neither sitting still nor shutting up. It's like we use the practice to actually help support a simultaneous deepening and expanding of our life. We begin to get an opportunity to balance the intuition with the rational as we live this way. We don't negate our intuition, nor do we negate our rational minds. But we see full well that the best way to let this stuff happen is to give our intellects a rest so that smart gives way to wise. We see that any type of manufactured kindness as a way of keeping from rocking the boat, let's say, or any type of false um, smile gives way to something that's much deeper. An infinitely huge compassion when we see that every single person we meet, whether they are our friends, perceived friends, or perceived enemies, we see that they, too, are sharing this life and death experience with us, whether they know it or not. And from all this, we can engage a practice where we just don't flinch in the face of whatever it is. We, we don't shirk responsibility because it's something we want to avoid. We get right in there. We, uh, we don't run away from anything that scares us. We start to recognize, in fact, that the more intense we feel pain, the more we want to get rid of it, or the more intense we feel fear, the more intense we feel any of our negative emotions, any of our negativity, the more we want to run. And yet we see the more we run, the more, more acute that intensity gets. You start recognizing that running is not an option. Hiding is not an option. We just step into life. 
we step into life from a place of practiced peace. And that practice of peace comes from a commitment to stillness, comes from a commitment to quietude each day. If you need to take one day off a week, that's fine. But each day, we get in there. And in that stillness, we actually develop a bizarre new set of skills. And we find that we have an infinite number of tools with which to undo the structures that have gotten in our way from a life that flows freely. <clears throat> and one of the things we've got to be really careful about, just so everybody's clear, especially as we start talking about commitment, um, it's very easy to turn commitment into a major attachment, where we, we become very pious, we become very Buddhist, or we become very Christian, or whatever. And that's, that's all well and good, but that's not the goal. The goal is not to become, as I've said, good Buddhists. It's to become Buddhas. It's not to become good Christians. It's to become Christ's. And this is, this is the way, the way to, one way to do that. We try not to um, attach to a fixed set of ideas. We try not to, this is a big one also, we try not to get smug about what it is that we're doing. If you hear somebody talking about their, for instance, their um, spiritual practice or whatever, and it strikes you as being inherently um, small <laughs> or somehow just not adequate or not like what we do, <laughs> you know, watch for that trap. Watch very carefully. Watch very carefully for that. And one of the great ways we can kind of engage this, this whole idea of commitment, is to make sure that in our lives we are doing what is generous as opposed to what we feel is right. There's a tendency for us coming from a small self-orientation to always want to be right. In fact, being wrong means death to the ego, typically. Instead of being right, go past that whole dualism of right and wrong and be generous, be giving. And make sure that the small self is included in that mix in every situation. And this forces us into a space of sharing. And ultimately, that's what the commitment is. Commitment is only personal insofar as it is something that you need to do. But it is something that is radically enhanced when there's an us affiliated with it. When we practice together, when we are committed together, there's a tremendous power in that. And it's kind of mysterious. Maybe your commitment is, you know what, once every six months, I'm showing up at Infinite Smile, I get, you know, kind of juiced, and then I, you know, cut out. That's fine. That's fine. If that's what your commitment is, that's fine. But look at your commitment. What is your commitment? Not necessarily, okay, 30 minutes a day, uh, once, once a week, 
with infinite smile, and then I want to make sure I do, you know, two extended retreats every six months. That might be, in fact, where your commitment is, but it's not required. What is required is that you examine very carefully and ask the question, well, what is my commitment? And that way, you yourself can be kind of, if you will, in charge of meeting this experience. And whatever that, whatever that looks like for you, fearlessly keep turning the heat up just a little bit all the time. Boil at some point. Commit, <laughs> commit to boiling. Because what falls away is all the stuff you don't need. Precisely all the stuff you don't need. Any questions? Yeah, please. Uh, earlier you talked about competition. Yeah. <coughs> and I can't get that straight in a larger sense. I know what competition is one-on-one, -on -one, but I put it in this context, chess. Right. I play chess. Mm -hmm. well, when you and I sit down to that table... You will beat me. I will beat you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, and I, yeah. I can't reconcile that now. Well, I either have to leave this room. Oh, actually, there's a tremendous amount of Zen in chess. And that... Well, let's, let's play it out. When you and I sit down to play chess and you are five moves ahead of me, is your, is your, goal, is your goal to destroy me or is your goal to enjoy the process of destroying me? <laughs> okay, time's up. I, I would think that it would probably be the process of destroying it. The right. process is much more important than the goal. Exactly. Ah, okay. So while there is the goal of beating me, really what you're articulating is it's not so much the goal, it's basically getting to the goal that becomes enlivened with all sorts of really cool neurotransmission and all, all sorts. Not only are you thinking, but you're, you're getting this certain rush of, you know, all the good, the feel-good chemicals, the, the dopamine, the serotonin, all that stuff's firing, right? Right, right? right, so there's pleasure associated with this experience of beating Mike in chess, okay? That's fine. Now, if I beat you, would it ruin your week? Well, I gotta say that I'm gonna have a feeling about that. I'm not quite sure what that feeling is. Right. But when I get beat, mm -hmm. I have a tendency to go in and, and it's my fault. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so okay. So, whatever that right. And that feeling, that feeling comes from, it's the same mechanism that we've constructed that wants to win <clears throat> or be right is exactly the same mechanism that grieves for its loss. Now, the neat thing about being in competition, uh, whether it's you know athletics or in this case you know uh, uh, chess, is that you have an opportunity every time you sit down 
to not attach to the outcome, yet play with your full heart and mind, knowing that actually the winning is not important. If you lose, you get to practice with all of those egoic attachments. You get to look at them. And when you get to look at them, you have loosened their grip. An egoic attachment cannot, it's the stickiness I talked about, that whole Velcro thing. The Velcro is like dead once we give it enough of our attention. It, can't, it, cannot, it cannot hold anymore if we are giving whatever our sense of loss is our full attention. And that doesn't mean that suddenly it becomes pleasurable. Oh, you won. Yeah. It, it becomes, you won. Excellent game. And it's excellent game coming from an uh, excellent match. It's coming from a place, you tip, you tip the king over, not from a place of, damn, even two or three days later, you're, coming at, you're tipping that, that king over as a bow. That person just taught you about your own attachments to winning and losing. Now, there's still competition there. Okay. Yeah? I think I see part of that last part. That's the difficult, because the way I look at that is that what you've taught me in our match uh-huh. is what I thought was a proper process was not. It's, and it, and it, that should be, I should look at my process over then and I can do it better than move. How about this? How about this? The, the, if, if I beat you in chess, I, and let's just say, I, I just give you the full-on spank. Let's say I really just dust you in like nine moves or something like that. You'll, ah, you know, you just really get rattled, okay? And I, I, have, I have done the, you know, the, just the master, master, I didn't even have to use the Spassky defense, okay? I just came at, that's total chess geek language right there. <laughs> I go after you. I beat you. On the one hand, this guy schooled me. This guy schooled me, but also he taught me how to, what to do next time. That's on the level of ego because that's in the win-loss. But what also happened, the big teaching is release. So whenever we get a teaching uh, that, that comes our way where our negativity is awakened, we are not only learning about, learning about, like in this case, winning and losing or being right or wrong, but we're also learning about our capacity to be generous with ourselves as well as the other person and the game. Yeah, I'm not there yet. I, I, I see it as a larger big view. Yes. Yes. Big view of it. If I could get to that point where I'm rising above this and looking at the big view of it, then I, I get, I think, what you mean. Try practicing that, which you just described. Try viewing your experience, whether it's chess or a phone call that's difficult, from that same 60,000 feet. Okay? It gives you a certain, I don't like using the word detachment, because that detached people are kind of like not there. But unattached means where we're not, let it, we're, not, we're not clinging to an outcome. We're actually just participating fully in our experience, whether it's playing chess or anything else. Or playing poker. Exactly, exactly. Same idea. Yeah. You can get away of 
the finesse. I, that's the word I was looking for, how you finesse that issue. And if you've taught me a new way to finesse this particular mm -hmm. match, then I've learned something. And the, that is the larger view. And the best, the best poker players I've ever seen are at complete and total peace with their experience as it's going on. Yeah. Does anybody actually know what the Spassky defense is? I'll show you later. It's really cool. <laughs> Anyone else? Yeah, Anka. I'm wondering if you could say something about um, excuses. I come up with numerous excuses every day, every day not to be committed, not to follow through. There's always something else that comes in the way of you know, me not practicing <laughs> right. or sitting. Or sure. So I'm really struggling with that. Mm -hmm. yeah. And does the excuse, does, does it feel sometimes as you're when you listen to an excuse that's being kind of articulated in your head, does it feel like the, ex the excuser and the excuse are coming from the same voice? Yeah. Okay. Does it feel like as you, as you are given an excuse, there's, there, is, there, is there guilt associated with it immediately or later? Yeah. Okay. Definitely. Guilt is there all the time. Right. Well, the, the cool thing about this is that that's all ego. That's all small self, and that's exactly the strategy it will use to keep you from awakening. Because remember, if you awaken to your, the truth of you, ego will have an amazingly subservient role. So one of the most effective strategies that the ego can use to keep that from ever happening is to make sure that you don't sit still. Or that when you're sitting still, that it's still in charge somehow. And the, so the great, the great practice here is being able to watch your excuse. When, when the excuse comes up, and it doesn't mean you have to you know, either honor it or push it aside and, and show a little fire, a little commitment, a little vow or whatever it is. You can, you can choose whatever you want. But when we know that the very thing in us which is making those excuses is the thing that will keep our awakening at bay, it does something different to our commitment. It does something different to our practice. Suddenly our practice in that moment, Anka, has the ability to surge way ahead because we can see what's happening. If we can see what's happening, it's no longer a mystery. And as long as it's not a mystery, then there is choice, right? So, and that's where, I mean, I think it's really valuable when you have a little bit of competitive spirit inside, because then it's like, who's going to win? Oh, oh, you're going to, that was an excuse. Nice job. Nice, nice. Guess what? I'm the bigger, I'm the big, bigger person here. And that argument itself is egoic, okay? But what happens is the evolutionary impulse that gets us to sit still in the first place at least has a chance, a better chance of, if you will, winning that battle. Once we get beyond that battle itself, we start seeing it for what it is, a very tiny little dance. But so be encouraged 
that as you begin to study your excuses, their weight diminishes substantially. You give it a yeah, report back. Okay. <laughs> Anyone else? It's the first Monday of the month. And that means uh, we always, uh, we always uh, check out a little bit, little bit earlier, give you guys some time just to kind of hang out with each other. Um, of course, you can go home if you want. Uh, but uh, it's always nice to recognize that there are a lot of people here, people that you might not hang out with on a daily basis, but people that are supporting your practice uh, immeasurably, helping you commit. Um, whatever that level of commitment might be. Okay? Thank you so much for coming. Checkmate.